Before we hear from God's word in Psalms, let us go to him in prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, we thank you that the word of God is still alive, it is still active, and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and so this morning we ask that your spirit would orient the thoughts and attitudes rightly. We pray that we would read your word in truth and not read what we want it to mean. We ask that you would receive all the praise and the preaching of your word, and in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles or your cell phones, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 91. Psalm 91, and before we begin reading, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. We read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my guide in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. And from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the air that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You may be seated. So in 1950s, there was a young missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott and his companions were killed by the Warani Indians in Ecuador. These missionaries believed in the power of the gospel to save souls. And they were willing to do whatever was necessary to share the gospel with this previously unreached people. And yet despite being killed by an arrow that flies by day, or more specifically in this case, it was a spear Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, wrote a book called Shadow of the Almighty, in reference here to Psalm 91, in which she continued to praise God for his faithfulness. Now, how could she write a book about Elliot's life and death and use this title knowing that her husband was killed? How could she believe the phrases in the psalm that we just read that said, God will deliver, God will protect, God will cover, God will rescue, even after she witnessed the murder of her own husband for sharing the gospel. Likewise, there may be some here wondering, how do you recognize the words that you just heard with what your experience is or what you've historically read about Christians? 
For centuries and even millennia, Christians have been tortured. They've suffered for their faith. They've been thrown in jail. They've been murdered. And even today, isn't it the case that in some countries that are hostile to the gospel, that there are Christians there who suffer, are tortured, and certainly experience things in this life far worse than those who are unbelievers or those who are hostile to the gospel? And so while we're just at the beginning of this message, I want everyone to know that God's word is true. God can and does deliver. He does rescue and he does save. He saves our souls and he delivers us from the power of sin and death through the power of his blood. As a familiar song sings, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives the song in the night season all the day long. And so today we're going to examine Psalm 91 as a song that God gives his people to strengthen their trust in him. Psalm 91 is, is perhaps the most beloved, one of the most well-known psalms. But unfortunately, the words of this psalm have been misused, they've been misinterpreted, and people have been led astray as a result. During the Middle Ages, members of the Jewish community, they would write Psalm 91 on objects in their home to protect themselves. They would, they would write the first letter of each word, of each uh, word that begins a verse, and they would write it on an amulet. And they thought that that amulet, if those words were inscribed there, that would protect the women in childbirth. It would protect the lives of the mother and the baby. And so based on stories like this, some have called Psalm 91 a psalm of protection. During a plague in Nuremberg in Germany in the 1500s, some inhabitants proclaimed the psalm's words that they would not be touched by the plague. They said, such a plague touches no man but those that are ordained of God. And so they were quoting Psalm 91 verse 10, which says, no plague shall come to your tent. And these individuals even refused medical treatment. They took it one step further. They would go to the places where the disease was rampant. And because of those who did this, sometimes Psalm 91 has been called the song of plagues. But perhaps most well-known Psalm 91 has been quoted by soldiers in war. During World War I, the Bible Society in Great Britain reported that a soldier at the Battle of the Somme repeated the words, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but you will not be harmed. And then it was reported that every one of his comrades was killed and his life was saved. And so as this story begins to circulate, mothers and wives begin to inscribe Psalm 91 in some form and they would send it with the men before they went off to war, thinking that it might ward off death. And so Psalm 91 is sometimes known as the soldier's psalm. And certainly we hope that soldiers are quoting scripture. We hope that they are finding hope in God's word. And right now, even one of our own church members, Trace, is serving overseas in the military. We hope he finds comfort in scripture. But anyone who believes that Psalm 91 is this magical incantation that will save their loved one from physical death may have their hopes dashed. And lastly, Psalm 91 is well known for being taken out of context by Satan himself when he tempted Christ. Satan brings Jesus there at the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And Satan says, if you really are the son of God, cast yourself down. Because doesn't scripture say, and he, and he refers and selectively quotes Psalm 91, he will command his angels to concerning you that your foot is not going to strike against the stone. But this morning, we're just going to refer to Psalm 91 as Psalm 91 what Luther calls a most distinguished jewel. 
And Scripture is true. It is always the inspired Word of God. And so it can take some effort, though, to understand it rightly. And so we're going to use 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, which says we need to rightly divide the word of truth. It could take a little bit of effort. And, and sometimes even in this Psalm 91, it might be a little hard to understand what's going on. Uh, we, we see the psalm uses pronouns going back and forth, I, you, and he. And, and who is being referred to in this passage? For you grammar nerds, what's the antecedent of this, of this pronoun that we read here? And what kind of psalm is Psalm 91? You know, we've been going through psalms over these last couple years, and there, there are psalms of wisdom, there are psalms of understanding, there are psalms of lament, which we've heard the last couple psalms, Pastors Rick and, and, and Pastors John have gone through psalms of lament. Frequently, Psalms 91 is described as a psalm of trust. And this morning, Pastor Jason chose songs that talked about how we can trust in God. We can get encouragement from Psalm 91. So there's no need to argue, though, over what kind of psalm it is. There's no need to argue over who wrote the psalm. See, we don't know who wrote Psalm 91. Like many other psalms, the author is not given to us. Some have speculated that it might have been Moses. It follows Psalm 90, and we know that Psalm 90 was written by Moses. There's some vocabulary, there's some language that's very similar. And there's others that think it might have been written by David. It's always a pretty good guess if you're wondering who the author of a psalm is. It's like the Sunday school answer of Jesus. We know David wrote many psalms. And even if you look at this psalm, you can, you can see it's almost structured potentially as a chorus. You read those first lines, He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to my Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Maybe a back and forth, something that might have been done during worship. But it doesn't matter because if we were supposed to know who the author was, God would have told us. What's far more important is that we get the understanding out of this text. What is God telling us in this Psalm 91? It's what theologians call exegesis. What do we get out of this text? How do we rightly interpret this text? Uh, that's a term you're not familiar with. You want to learn more about it. There's lots of books. I'm sure Pastor John can, could, could point out some good books on exegesis, but it means to draw out the meaning. And that's really in stark contrast to asegesis, which means in, into. People want to take this passage and read into it what they want to believe. But reading what you want to believe will lead to dire consequences. Because if you read that the way you want to read, that it's going to be some protective spell, some magical words that you can say, then you've just witnessed a God who may not seem that he's all-powerful. It may not seem that he's faithful to deliver on his promises. And so this morning, let's rightly divide the word of truth and rightly understand what God is saying in this passage. So that leads to the first point of this message, which is that both believers and non-believers experience suffering. Both believers and non-believers experience suffering. See, when God created mankind, he surrounded him in a world in which there was no death. There's no suffering. There's no pestilence. There's no destruction that we read about in Psalm 91. There's no terror of the night. There was no arrow that flies by day. Man and woman had access to all of the delights that God had placed in that Garden of Eden. And it was man's sinful decision to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought death into this world. They could have eaten from any other tree, but they chose that one. They disobey God. Everyone here since then has disobeyed God, except for one, Christ Jesus. And when we sin against him, there are consequences. There are consequences both in this life, in this world, and in the next. 
And the consequences in this life, we read in Psalm 90. Verse 8 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And we all experience what God said in Genesis 2 about Adam, our representative. For in the day that you eat of it, referring to the fruit, you will surely die. And so we can read this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from stars in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And as believers, we are new creatures in Christ. We have been born again. We are described as a new man. We can read in Ezekiel 18, 31, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And so while God gives us this new heart and a new spirit, when we repent of our sins, when we put our trust and faith in him, he doesn't take away our old bodies when we become a believer. At least not yet. Not yet. He describes this state in Romans 7 when Paul says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of, of sin. And so we still have this old flesh with us. This same flesh is an unbeliever that's vulnerable to suffering, to death. And so if you're a member of Providence Bible Fellowship or you're thinking about one, we have a membership class in this membership class, we go through the doctrines of what we believe, and we devote an entire hour. We spend an entire hour understanding what we mean when we say that God saves us. We never say that God saves us from sin and suffer, or saves us from suffering, never saves us from death. We say he saves us from the penalty of sin. It's a doctrine of justification. The blood of Christ satisfied the wrath of God. Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he saves us from the penalty and he saves us from the power. This is the sanctification that we read in Romans 6. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so the good news today is that sin is not our master. If we've trusted in him, sin does not reign over us. Christ is our king. He reigns on high, and he has delivered us from the bondage of sin so that we can serve him. But that deliverance from the presence of sin, that suffering of sin, it's not in this life. It is a promise of what is to come. We read in Revelation, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new." There will be a time where there is no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, but it's not now. 
We read, I am making all things new. The justification is already done. The sanctification is happening right now, but the glorification is yet to be. And so both believers and unbelievers, we will face death unless Christ returns first. Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We will walk through the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. Death's shadow has cast its pale over this world, and its long shadow extends to all. Suffering frequently accompanies death, and even as God is gracious and we die quickly without pain, our loved ones will grieve. We read in the Gospels that, that Jesus, after talking to his grieving sisters, and he, he saw Lazarus' friends weeping, he was deeply troubled and moved. And after he was asked where G, uh, Lazarus had been laid, he was invited to come and see. And there we read those two short words, Jesus wept. He experienced suffering. And in this room, there are perhaps women who have suffered silently. As mothers who may know the suffering and grief that comes from losing a child in the womb. This year, our church, we even held a service for a little child. A young boy who experienced suffering and pain. So many tears were shed by those who loved him, his family, his extended family, his friends. And we all witness the suffering that occurs from death's entrance into this world. And we have church members that suffer from cancer. They perhaps face the prospect of death very real. It's very vivid. And our experiences, these things that we see and we know to be true, they don't deceive us. And the psalmist in Psalm 91, he's not delivered from suffering either. Listen to how he describes them. The terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness. And we could think of these as very literally. The terror of the night could refer to dangers that come by the night because they know that people are vulnerable when they're resting. So at the time this psalm would have been written, there's no street lights, there's no illumination that they got around by using oil lamps, by candles, by torches. And, and this overall lack of light meant that criminal activity could take place. So it was a very real tear of night that they might have faced. In fact, nighttime is the preferred time for thieves and murderers. Even in Job, we read, the murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. And war, night raids were tactics that were used to catch the enemies off guard, if you can't see the enemy at night, it inspired terror. That arrow that flies by day, again, it could have been very literal. It might have been battles or wars that might have taken place during the time of the psalmist. You see, the ancient cities in, in, in the Middle East, and particularly in Israel, they were, they were under constant attack. They had to worry about the enemies on the north, the south, that they were going to come in and be attacked. Pestilence and darkness could have been very real. It could have, could have alluded to diseases, to plagues that, that came about with no rhyme, no reason. Suddenly, the day and night phrase could have been taken literally. There was often no rest from some of these. Under the attacks, when the psalm was written, it wasn't during the, the Pax Romana, during the Roman peace, where there was peace for time for some of these cities, some of these people. No, these, a lot of times, unless it was during that time of David where there was peace that was granted, there was often attacks that these people had to be aware of. Others have perhaps uh, interpreted this language more metaphorically, more, more, more figuratively. They thought about these attacks of the night and day as, as, as perhaps attacks by Satan and his demons. 
We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we see the, the, the parallel there between the darts and the, and the arrows here. And, and Satan is still attacking believers today. Certainly the snare of the fowler that we read about could be, could be interpreted figuratively. Spurgeon wrote an entire psalm called The Snare of the Fowler. And it, and it works so well because of how Satan attacks. See, you, you have to conceal the trap. You have to conceal that snare. It's not really a good trap if you can see it, if you're aware of it. And so the, the fowler doesn't just leave the trap in plain sight. He, might, he, he covers it so you're, you're caught unaware. Earlier this year, uh, Isaac and I, we went to the boat show in downtown Cincinnati, which, which, by the way, is also full of traps to get you to spend money. Um, so just be careful. But, but when we were there, we watched this duck hunting uh, demonstration with dogs. And, and we were talking about the duck hunting with these hunters and, and how they would set their decoy ducks. So they'd take these decoy ducks, they would, they would put them on the water, and then birds would fly around in the air. And then they would come and land on the water because they thought that these ducks were real. And so then the hunters were lying in wait to get them. So how many times have we fallen victim to something that looks too good to be true? But it's nothing more than a trap laid by Satan himself. Something to draw us in and that the enemy uses as a decoy to destroy our testimony and attack our faith. So we don't, we don't know, again, we don't know who the author is. We don't know how literal we could take these. We don't know how figuratively we could take this language. But again, we know that suffering is real. We know that the attacks of the enemy is real. And we know that death is real. And so, so knowing all this, how can we trust God when he says he will preserve us? How do, how do we make sense of this? And so, so that leads to the second point of the message, which is God preserves the salvation of our souls. Preserves the salvation of our souls. Listen to some of the phrases. He will deliver you. He will cover you. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. I will protect him. I will rescue them. And, and there are so many phrases of this, this preservation here. And so again, how do we, how do we reconcile this with, with passages that we read in Job? See, so just in, in, in a short period of time, Job lost his livestock, his servants, his children. He, he's afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to, to the crown of his head. His friends, they, they go in lengthy monologues and, and diatribes against Job. And, and they even suggest that maybe this suffering is because of, of hidden sins. And in the New Testament, we read in Acts that James was executed by the sword for, for, um, for his testimony. We read that Peter was asked to be crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece, who was said to have been preached to his executioners until his death. And, and so if, if they're not protected from suffering and death, what is it that God is preserving? What's he protecting? What's he rescuing them from, covering? He preserves our salvation. He preserves our faith. In his commentary on Psalm 91, Luther wrote, This faith alone lasts. It is protected from all peril and destruction of false teaching, from the assaults of the devils on both sides. And this happens because of the one who is in Christ Jesus, shelters himself under Christ's wings and shoulders where he places his refuge and confidence. And it might be helpful to read parts of Psalm 91 next to John 10, 28, and 29, where Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and, and they will never perish. So again, if we, if we just stop right there and we take the surface level meaning of the words, it seems like Jesus might be saying something false here. People die today. They died in Jesus' time. We, we just read about Lazarus, how Lazarus had died. 
So, so he cannot be referring to our physical bodies or our lives. It's that new man, that part of us which was born again, when we trusted in Christ and came to him, that is what will never perish. He will preserve our salvation. We continue reading in John, it says, And no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. No one. Not the fowler, not the one who is watching and hunting and laying traps for us. That is what God promised in Psalm 91. We can perhaps even see this more clearly when we read in Romans. You're very familiar with this passage, Romans 8, 38-39, which says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, uh, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now in light of Romans 8, it should be very clear what Psalm 91 means when it says that God will save us. Nothing is going to separate us from his love. We sung those songs this morning. Nothing will separate us from his love. He holds fast to me in love. Verse 14, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And so do you know God today? Do you know his name? Are you held steadfast in his love? Can you sing along with that hymn and truly say, he will hold me fast? He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast. How does he hold us fast? This is a psalm of trust. I said earlier when we open, this is a psalm of trust. And so it's not a blind trust. God gives us reasons. He encourages us. We can know why we can trust him. And he actually uses four different names for God just in those first two verses. Four different words for God just in those first two verses. The first one we read is the most high. The most high. A God most high would provide protection. You may have heard the phrase demographics is destiny. You heard that phrase, demographics is destiny. So, so you look at a birth rate of a country like Japan. Uh, in, in Japan, they just have over one child per woman. In fact, they sell more incontinence briefs to the elderly than they do diapers to babies in Japan. And so if you just forecast those demographics out for several, uh, several hundred years, then the population of Japan is going to go to zero. So, demo, so, so demographics is destiny. Now, back then, geography was destiny. Geography was destiny. So in the modern age, you know, we don't really think about geography too much. If, if, if we're in a war, the, the planes, the squadron of planes, will just fly over the, the Middle East, will just fly over Vietnam, will just fly over Japan. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. The geography doesn't matter. But then, in times of this psalm, geography is destiny. A city near a river is going to thrive economically. It's going to have access to water, access to trade. Cities were built on hills, too. And the cities were built on a hill because they provide protection. Huge advantage from being on the hill. If you're defending your city, you, you've got a clear view of the defenders that are around you. As they, as they come up and maybe they try to make an advance on you, they're, they're going to have any sort of difficulty getting up there. And, and even if you have to attack from the high ground, you've got an advantage too. It's easier for you to come down. So, so this idea that God is the most high makes a lot of sense to the people who would have heard this. They would have instantly recognized that God who is most high is going to offer protection. The next word we read is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. 
And this word indicates power. I'm sure many of you have heard this word before. This, this emphasizes God's power to achieve his purposes. And in this case, his purpose is to protect and preserve the salvation of his people from the power of the enemy. We, we see how he does this. We see the words uh, of, of destruction in, in Joel 1.15. It says, The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Again, we read the Almighty. That's the same word for El Shaddai. And so he has the power over sin and death. He has the power to destroy those things. The power of them over us as believers was destroyed by Jesus at the cross. So we can take trust. We have confidence that God will preserve and protect us. The, the, the other word, the third word we read is, is Yahweh. I am who I am. And if God is I am who I am, his pr- ability to protect is found only in himself. See, he doesn't exist in relation to anything else. He stands apart from creation. Nothing else ever existed. God would still be God. Now, I'm not a big fan of comic books. It's not something I I read a lot of growing up, but I know there's many people in here who are. Um, And and, and in those comic books, it often makes sense to have an arch nemesis. You you have Batman and you have the Joker. You have Batman and, and the Penguin. It's almost like Batman is defined by them, his relationship to these other characters. But, but God doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't derive his meaning, his existence from anyone else. I am who I am. And so that means his strength is complete in himself. When he makes that claim that he's going to protect us, he's not getting his power. He's not deriving that from anyone else. Others are going to fail. We read that in the, in the opening scripture this morning. There are others that will fail us. But God is faithful. In who he is, he will protect us. The great I am will always be there. And then the last word that we read for God is El. And, and, and it's just translated as God. So when you read that in the ESV version, it will just say God. That, that's the word we most commonly use when we, we talk about the God of Israel or the God of Canaanites. Um, but, but notice there's a, a change here uh, at the beginning of, of, of Psalm 91. Before the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, he's using the, he's talking about the God, not talking about a God, not talking about other gods. He's still talking about the God, the God that reigns on high, the God who creates all things. But, but notice the variation here at the end. Now it becomes possessive. Now it's my God. And this, and this very small change from the God to my God makes all the difference. Because if, if God is most high, if he is almighty, he's always existed, he is who he says he is, that I want to be under his protection. I want him to be my God because his deliverance, his protection, his salvation only comes to those who dwell in his shelter. It's not promised to everyone. It's only those who can say, my God. And so that leads to the third point, which is our deliverance is in Christ. Our deliverance is in Christ. The only way, the only way to dwell in this shelter is through him. God himself took on human flesh. He became a person. He bore the wrath of the almighty God. The El Shaddai will punish sin. But Christ paid the penalty that an almighty and just God requires. And and he could take our place because he was 100% man. And God's wrath was satisfied but we can call him our savior. We can call him our Lord because he is 100% God. He has the power to conquer sin and death. And in John chapter eight, Jesus describes himself as Yahweh. He said to the Jews at the time, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or in other words, Yahweh. Now, when Jesus spoke this to the Jews, they would have immediately recognized what he was saying. It would have immediately come obvious, immediately been blasphemy to them because he was claiming to be the very God in Psalm 91. He also said in another place, I and my Father are one. And this would have been very familiar to the Jews. I and my Father are one. They would have recognized this from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God. We are one. So, so Jesus isn't being unclear here. There's, there's no confusion. It's not, there's not a little uncertainty about what he might mean. Jesus is very clear. I am God. I am the only way to deliver and protect the salvation of those who put their trust in me. This past summer, uh, Pastor John and I have been going through Jesus' I am statements with the young adults. And, and the last one that we went through was um, the, the door. I am the door. How he describes himself in John 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So this morning, know that there's only one door. There's only one way to be saved, only one way to be protected, only one way to find shelter, and it's only by putting your trust in Christ. And we we see this foreshadowing of Christ here in Psalm 91 as well. If you look back at verse 13, it says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. See, Satan is an adversary, but Jesus has defeated him. Satan is described in 1 Peter 5.8 as a lion. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's also described as a serpent. We read that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so we can read Psalm 91, verse 13, as messianic. They foreshadow Christ and what he will accomplish Our salvation is assured because we know that Christ crushed the enemy. He brought deliverance to his people. And because Christ has delivered us, our salvation is secure in God Almighty. So then that leads to the last point. How do we respond to this? Knowing this, what do we do? Believers should not fear their circumstances. Should not fear their circumstances. Look again in verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night. We read in Isaiah, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we have the promise. We have Psalm 91 that he will be our refuge. We can flee to him and he will protect us. Any parent in this room has, has, has known the experience of a night when they go to bed alone and they wake up the next morning and there's one, two, maybe three kids if there was a really bad thunderstorm last night lying next to them in bed. And because children instinctively know to go to their parents. That's where they find refuge. That's where they find protection. And as children of God, we also find protection in our Father. He alone provides comfort in refuge. Remember in verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's very similar language to another psalm, Psalm 27, which says, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. 
He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. So, so, so we could almost see a parallel here between the safety that can only be found in a place like the Holy of Holies. You might be wondering, how, well, how, is that, how is that safe? How is the Holy of Holies safe? But it's important to realize who is safe and how they are safe in the Holy of Holies. You see, it's only safe when the high priest entered. It's only safe we entered on a certain day, Yom Kippur. If, if anyone else tries to enter, he would be killed. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, though, this morning, you are in grave danger. You're not protected. You should fear the sufferings, the attacks that you're going through, but that is nothing compared to what might be to come, what will be to come, because you don't have Christ as your high priest. Please listen closely when Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Death in this world is not the end. The death of body and soul together in hell is the ultimate loss. So if you are not a believer, don't, don't waste any more time thinking about the sufferings, the troubles in this life. The, the promises of hope and deliverance that we read in Psalm 91 won't apply. But there is good news. We read in Psalm 91, hope. We read the gospel. The gospel message shines bright in this passage. Repent of your sins, turn to Jesus, and trust him as your Lord and Savior. And he will be your shelter in the time of storm. And if you have any questions about what that might mean, please see myself, see any of the pastors. Please ask those around you. We'd be happy to walk through that with you. And if you're a believer, do not fear. Do not fear. You can find peace in the shadow of the Almighty. You can find comfort in his shelter. And we can believe Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that we read in Psalm 91. We thank you that we could find comfort, that we can find refuge, that we could find protection because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. When trying times come, and they will come, please remind us of your promise to cover us with your wings, to be our shield. And in times of difficulty, let us find peace knowing that our salvation and our faith is secured in you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.